Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, good evening, everybody. We might get this show on the road. Minor. Ooh. Hello, testing, testing, okay, good. Uh, my, my name is Ian Maxwell, I'm the chair of the Department of Theatre and Performance Studies here at the University of Sydney, and I'm your MC for tonight. Uh, th the first part of the proceedings involves our shared acknowledgement of the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we're gathered, the, the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. The University of Sydney is built upon their ancestral lands and we believe uh, upon and around sites of particular significance for those people, sites of, of learning, ceremony, and the dissemination of knowledge. And I do want to take a moment to, to reflect on that, uh, particularly in the context of what we're dealing with today, which is, of course is about a very particular place a long, long way away, which also served as a site for the sharing of knowledge, sharing of philosophy, and of course pleasure, and of the building of a sense of people as, as a people. And I also wanted to, to just reflect for a minute on the shared performativity of, of those places and those people. For while we tend to think about Shakespeare as the epitome of a tradition of literature, it's just as fruitful to think of his work, the work that he undertook with his collaborators, in terms of a performative tradition which happened to leave as part of its legacy a body of literature and, and edifices um, lost and now resurrected. The performative, philosophical and social legacy of the Gadigal people has perhaps left fewer material traces but is no less tangible, no less living and no less real. And as we share knowledge, teaching and learning and research at this university, we pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of this country, of this land. Okay, I'd like to welcome our guests this evening and to explain the format of the evening as we roll forward. To my right is Associate Professor Tim Fitzpatrick. Uh, Tim is one of the founders of the department in which I work, so I thank him every day for my ability to pay my mortgage. Um, and I've had the honour of, of working with Tim for many, many years. Um, Tim's, I hesitate to say, early body of research, but a significant part of his research was on the Commedia dell'arte, uh, the masked theatre that flourished in Renaissance Italy with its precedence back in Roman times. Tim's work focused on the process by which Commedia performers were able to improvise and to, um, Tim was researching the ways in which working with skeletal scripts, set routines and stock characters, the performers in Commedia will be able to compose in performance. Uh, extraordinary body of work. Of course, from there, it's only a very short leap to thinking about Shakespeare. And Tim's great insight was that the, the principle about com composition in performance, not quite making it up as you go, but working with what from our perspective, will be quite limited rehearse, uh, resources, next to no rehearsal time, no director. How could they actually assemble these extraordinary bodies of art? So that's Tim. Tim will, will speak first. Dr. Miles Gregory is the founder of the Pop-Up Globe, 
its first artistic director and CEO. He was born in Wellington, read for his BA in Modern History at Durham, before taking an MFA in staging Shakespeare at Exeter, and received his PhD for a thesis, I researched this, on Cymbeline, yeah, entitled Cowboys and Romans from Bristol University. Um, he was the founding artistic director of the Bristol Shakespeare Festival and the British Touring Shakespeare Company, and then three, uh, three years as artistic director of the Maltings Theatre at Berwick-on-Tweed. He, I, I love this little bit in his bio, said, at 23, he was the youngest director in London's West End, directing a play, I, I think it's called Ham, Hamlet. Hamlet, yes. <laughs> <laughs> And another one called Twelfth Night for the Westminster Company, and has subsequently directed Shakespeare, predominantly Shakespeare around the world, right? And I believe this year was the recipient of a prestigious, prestigious New Zealand award, um, the is it the Blake Leader Award? Very good. And on my far right is Amanda Billing, who will be known to you as Dr. Sarah Potts. From the long. Mm. Oh no, we all watched. No, no, it was. No, see, resounding silence. <laughs> it was, it was. Channel 9, 10.30 Thursdays, something like that. <laughs> um, how long did you play that role for? Ten years. Ten years. It's what Australian actors call a mortgage role. Yes, yeah? yes. Um, Amanda claims to have fallen into acting on a whim, having turned up to a, a, an audition and getting the role, yeah? and dumping your day job as a history and geography teacher, yeah. and since it's had a long list of credits, and is um, working in this as one of the companies in this season of the Pop-Up Globe, playing, among other roles, a soldier in Macbeth, <laughs> and Lady Macbeth as well, yeah, yeah. when you're not being a soldier, and a couple of roles in uh, the Comedy of Errors. So you get to see Amanda on stage in the next couple of weeks. So the format for the evening is as follows. <laughs> um, each speaker will speak. <laughs> uh, Tim, I think 15 minutes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, then we're going to have 10 minutes. Four. <laughs> I don't know. No, Somewhere. I can, I but, can but go on. They'll each have I their turn on the floor. Go on and on. And then we'll have a moderated discussion. So I'll be paying attention and trying to keep up. And we'll have a, a chat amongst the, the speakers. And then we'll turn it open to the audience for your questions as well. Uh, and we will wrap up at about five minutes to eight. So, on with the show. Tim. Okay, as Ian said, I come from an unexpected uh, research background for someone who ends up researching Elizabethan playhouses. This presentation is about how I got to where I got. Um, and it all began when I first saw the London Globe in 1995 and thought it was just too big. I just didn't believe that it could be an accurate reconstruction of a playhouse built by actors for actors. So what I did was go back to the original source documents and reinterpret them. And that research, uh, a collaboration with Russell Emerson, who's sitting here in the front row, uh, was the startup then, for, uh, was the uh, starting point for the pop-up globe. What were the original sources? There were two of them. In 1599, Peter Street finished building the first globe and the following year, Philip Henslow asked him to build the Fortune, a square courtyard playhouse based explicitly on the globe. 
Thirteen years later, this first globe burnt down during a performance, and Shakespeare's company immediately rebuilt it on the burnt-out foundations. The second globe opened the following year, and then 20 years later, Wenceslas Holler captured it in one of four sketches that he did in preparation for his engraving of London. So I'm going to explain what I, we, did with these two sources, but this is where we ended up. Nearly a decade later, Russell made this 1 to 50 scale model, which shows the theoretical structure that we developed. Our second globe is a polygon. It's built to ad quadratum geometry. It has 16 sides and is 86 feet across. Now I'm going to explain how we got to that. It's very different from the London Globe because the relationship between the stage and the galleries and the size of the yard in between them, what determines the actor-audience relationship, results from ad quadratum geometry. So what the hell is that? Other scholars have looked at this as a possible geometry for the playhouses, but I noticed something that they'd missed. It works like this. If you have a square, say 10 feet across, and you wrap a circle around it, then another square, then another circle, you can keep going on to infinity, but we'll stop at the second square because what's interesting is that the second, sorry, the second circle is twice as wide as the first square. And I can prove it to you right now. <laughs> Only joking. That's how I proved it to myself in 1996. There's actually an easier way. Watch this. There's our 10-foot square. Watch the one on the right. Okay. If we rotate the second square through 45 degrees and take out that second circle, just so we can see better, put in a couple of diagonals, we can see that the square is two triangles across and the circle is four triangles across, QED. Why is that important? Well, because if you do stop at this second circle, it gives you the footprint of a playhouse. And if you start with a square, say, 43 feet across, you get a playhouse 86 feet across. But you can also calculate, and this is the really interesting thing, the depth of the galleries. They'll be just over 12 and a half feet deep. Those of you that remember inches will know that seven is slightly more than six, and six is half of 12. So what? And why did I randomly start with 43 feet? Well, our first source, the contract for, that Henslow struck with Peter Street for the Fortune, specifies a stage 43 feet across with galleries 12 foot 6 inches deep. Now the contract says the fortune was to be based on the globe that Street had just finished. So I thought, what if those two numbers came from a first globe that was ad quadratum? What if during the contract discussions, Street and Henslow agreed to recycle these two key dimensions, the width of the stage and the depth of the galleries? If they did, and if the first globe was ad quadratum, we had an overall width to work with, 86 feet. Now this was pure conjecture, but we thought it was worth exploring this hypothesis of a smaller first globe rather than the 100-foot globe that John Orrell had calculated and imposed on the London building, which so frightened me when I stood on the stage.
It certainly turned out to be worth exploring, and this is where we leapt from a hypothetical first globe that was ad quadratum to strong evidence of an ad quadratum second globe. Our second source document is this sketch by Wenceslas Holler, renowned artist and engraver and mapmaker, looking upstream from the Tower of Southwark Cathedral. It's in pencil. Uh, you can see the Thames running there and St Paul's Cathedral, the original one, the Gothic one before the fire, is in the top right-hand corner. The foreground, which includes the second globe there in the middle distance, has been over-inked. Now, it's not the topographic drawing that John Orrell suggested, but a freehand sketch. But we should nevertheless take it seriously and attempt to account for its features. Why take it seriously? Well, Hollis sketched a lot, recording buildings that he saw on his travels. His sketches served as documentation for his eventual etchings, and we know just how good he was because some of the buildings that he sketched are still standing. The sketch is at the Yale Centre for British Art. Many scholars had pontificated on it, usually just to point out supposed shortcomings, without actually having seen the original. I was the first to request 8 by 10 enlargements of this detail of the original and to specifically request an exposure that would bring the pencil lines into clear view and to actually go to Yale equipped with a powerful magnifying glass. The image just needed to be examined carefully. It shows multiple drafts in pencil and any imprecisions can be put down to its smallness of scale and the roughness of the drawing paper he was using. And the later over-inking does introduce some errors. For example, it makes that M-shaped double gable over the stage look lopsided. We can see multiple pencil lines. Over-inking that in places averages out the dis difference between two pencil lines and in lots of places um, privileges one pencil line at the expense of others. This is particularly noticeable at the left-hand end of the building something that I'll come back to. And then at the right-hand end of the building, there's an ink line with no pencil line underneath it that disregards a perfectly good pencil line to enlarge the building at that end. But I'm convinced that within this, these limitations, the sketch can be interrogated to understand the structural relations between the building's components. And there are three. First of all, the polygonal drum. Now, we know it was a polygon, but Holler was far enough away to justify drawing it as a circular drum rather than showing us the uh, sections of the polygon. Though as we'll see, I think he might have put one of the verticals in, that brown one there. The polygon had two external stair turrets to get the audience up into the upper galleries, and there was a rectangle, this double-gabled st uh, stage cover. Somehow sitting on in the polygon. Now that's the big question. How do you mesh a rectangle and a polygon? It can be difficult, but it can be surprisingly easy. The donut on the left is an ad quadratum donut. Its two polygons are related by the square that sits in between them. The one on the right, not. So here are four posts that are in a rectangular relationship to each other. And there's the rectangular roof. You could build on them to cover the stage. The one on the right, not so much. 
I'm going to briefly fast forward and show you this. Can't resist it. When we built and then photographed our reconstruction from Holler's point of view, it gave us just the right profile of this key junction between these two disparate components. Now, it was this evidence, rather than any a priori preference for theory, that made me believe that both globes were, in fact, ad quadratum, and that, therefore, our earlier conjecture about the first globe being 86 feet wide was valid. But let's go back to the building process as we gradually work towards this structure that we thought that Holler had sketched. Firstly, we, we assume 16 sides because the square in ad quadratum means that it's logical to divide into two, then four, then eight. We could have stopped at eight, but an eight-sided polygon doesn't look circular the way Holler's does, so we went for the 16-sided donut. And then there was the archaeology. In 1989, they uncovered the remains of some bay junctions that gives us very tentatively the dimensions of one bay of the polygon. There's also a lean-to building built on the outside of the theatre. It's not Holler's stair turret, which would have been adjacent to it there in grey. It seemed to us that the footprint of our 86-foot playhouse, if it had 16 sides, would fit, fit pretty well onto this slender archaeological evidence. And you can see there how small uh, a fragment of the overall ground plan they actually uncovered. 20 years later, the archaeologists published their final report, confirming that the two globes shared the same set of foundations and were 16 or perhaps 17-sided polygons somewhere between 83 feet and 95 feet across. Not 20-sided, not 100 feet across, as John Orrell had calculated in the 1980s. The yard at the, at the London Globe is one and a half times too big for the archaeology. Our 86-foot plan lies smack in the middle of the archaeologists' 16-sided range. And as we thought, our 16-sided, 86-foot, ad-quad polygon maps neatly on to the archaeology. So this is the house that Russell built, first of all in CAD. I've got to fast-forward through a lot of detail here. As our plans developed, they began to illuminate certain contested features of Holler's sketch. The positioning and function of the onion dome, the position and strange angling of the two stair turrets, the geometry of this double-gabled stage cover and what that tells us about where the stage posts might have been uh, on the stage holding up the roof. Here are just a couple of renderings of Russell's model. But in fact, the house that Russell built was bigger than this. We knew where Holler had climbed to get his view of London, the Tower of Southwark Cathedral, and we knew where that was relative to the globe. But better than that, the Museum of London calculated for us precisely how far away Holler was, what precisely was his compass bearing to the foundations, and how much higher than the foundations he was. So this meant that Russell could build this very strange building, consisting of the playhouse, of course, plus a line about 350 metres long and a tower 50 metres high. And that meant we could look at one part of the building, the playhouse, from another, the top of the tower. We could look, if you like, down that red arrow, uh, from Holler's point of view. Here you can see we're doing that. Uh, in the foreground you can see the green tower. We're looking over the top of that at the foundations which are just in behind that stair turret. We're looking down the red arrow there. 
Now, when we superimposed the CAD wireframe on the sketch, I thought it was pretty interesting. But see how the two roof ridges of the stage cover in CAD angle up compared to Holler's ridges. His are there in black and the CAD ones in red. Russell said this was because the CAD um, projection wasn't taking into account perspective. And that was when he decided he really needed to build the model that I showed you back at the start and uh, then photograph it from Holler's point of view, which we did. And this is the photo I showed you before. So we could compare our image with Holler's. An initial superimposition got those roof ridges running at precisely Holler's angle, but there are some discrepancies. Firstly, the model rebalances, as it should, Holler's lopsided stage cover. And on the right, it follows some pencil lines rather than the inkings. But there's a more serious discrepancy at the base. It goes underground in relation even to the lowest of Holler's three base lines, pencil lines in the bushes. Further analysis of this last discrepancy led me to attempt a second and I now think definitive superimposition. At the left-hand end, Holler has drawn four pencil lines and then inked one of them, the leftmost of them. But I think we should ignore this ink line and the roof lines that depend on it in favour of two other pencil lines. Two, those two there. Because I think his four pencil lines are in fact two sets of two. I think he was trying to capture the two verticals of that last section of the polygon. Are they here or are they there? I go for these ones, the right-handmost ones, because they just happen to be perfectly aligned with that line in the bushes at the bottom. This superimposition resolves the height discrepancy and preserves the other points of convergence. I'll just do a couple of crossfades here so you can see that. Why he might have marked these two vertical timbers, uh, or in particular the one on the right, and not the others around the polygonal section is something that I find very interesting, but I haven't got time for that today. I have to jump brutally to my conclusion. Had our building been there when Holler climbed up the tower, it would have yielded a sketch very similar to the one that he left us. I'd, of course, go further than that and claim that our design and his sketch validate each other, that it was our building that he captured. And that it's unlikely that another set of assumptions and design parameters would generate a better match than this. So anyone who wants to try will have to either discredit Holler completely or reinterpret Holler in another way and exceed our benchmark in terms of matching to the sketch. But how did we get from this to this? Dr. Miles Gregory. Uh, well, uh, yes, good evening. Hello, I, I'm Miles. Uh, thank you, Tim, for a presentation that I, I have seen before, but I must say I'm utterly convinced by your ad quadratum theory. It does seem to match that evidence so well. But my background is not as a theatre historian, but as more of a theatre maker, and um, at one stage sort of willing but naive academic, uh, a, a role which I, I no longer have. Um, although I still keep the doctor, which is revealing. Um, so I would, I'm going to spend 10 minutes talking with you now, taking you from Tim's research 
uh, into the realities of Pop-Up Globe um, and this remarkable project. Well, Pop-Up Globe um, is a big idea that came from a very small person, and that, that person is my daughter, Nancy. Uh, and in 2014, I was uh, back in Auckland after a long time in the UK with my wife and our family, and I was reading a pop-up storybook to my little girl, Nancy, and uh, one of the things in this storybook was the original Globe. Now, I get quite excited about these sort of theatres, and that must have transmitted itself to her, and she said, Daddy, can we go and see? Uh, well, she probably didn't say Daddy, that's quite sentimental. She probably said, Dad, can we go and see it? And I, sa I started to explain that, of course, the nearest replica is a long way away from Auckland in New Zealand. In fact, there isn't one in the Southern Hemisphere. But then the idea of a pop-up globe, that this um, temporary full-scale replica, uh, intrigued me. And um, uh, and I talked to my wife about it, and it intrigued her. And then we talked to other people, and it also intrigued them. And so uh, we, we're not, I'm not a man of wealth, and uh, I met an old school friend who was also intrigued. He's not a person who's very wealthy either, but we begged and borrowed and brought on board a whole lot of partners, uh, and uh, we created a pop-up globe. Now, we're not the first temporary globe theatre, by, by any means. There are a number of previous temporary globe theatres, Here's one from the Shakespeare England exhibition. It's a half-scale one, and they did sort of 40-minute performances. That's one of the earliest. But this is not a full history. Um, there, there is research out there that is more comprehensive. This 1933 Chicago Temporary Globe, I believe it's, it's Chicago, um, is another reconstruction of the first globe. But a lot of these, these reconstructions are really totally conjectural, and they're based on discredited evidence now. So I don't think they really bear much resemblance to the kind of globes that we're used to today. Here is a, a globe that was built, uh, built in, in Zundert. Uh, it says Germany, it's actually Holland, my apologies. And this, this is a, a reconstruction of the, the globe that opened in London that existed for six weeks and is wrapped in plastic. Um, and they held some performances there too. But then we wanted to create something right from the beginning that would have some uh, other use than just putting on theatre, that would provide a platform for uh, some uh, research. And it was very important to us to recreate the instrument that Shakespeare wrote his plays uh, for, uh, some of them, and in which many of his plays were performed. Of course, the, the first globe um, is where most of Shakespeare's plays, is the theatre for which most of Shakespeare's plays uh, were written. But there is an important distinction between the first globe and the second globe. The first thing about the first globe is, of course, it has been reconstructed, although, uh, as we have learned tonight, possibly not to uh, uh, the, the current thinking about dimensions. But when the first globe was constructed, Shakespeare was an early stage of his career. When it burned down in 1613, Shakespeare had written a huge body of work for that theatre and had been working in it with his company for some 14 years. It was immediately rebuilt by Shakespeare and the company. And it is my firm belief that they poured all of that learning that had happened there over that period in this highly successful theatre into the second globe. And re it was a, uh, reconstructing the second globe gave us this wonderful opportunity, well, to work with Tim and Russell on their research, which was just a few years old at that stage. And it was the first time that we were able to reconstruct this theatre from pictorial evidence. There is very little evidence pictorially about the first globe. But the second globe, we have that wonderful holler sketch and the later engraving based upon it. When we built Pop-Up Globe, um, we, it took 15 months to get the project off the ground and we opened the first Pop-Up Globe in Auckland in February of 2016. That was, it has, now, it has evolved significantly over the, uh, this is now the fourth iteration of Pop-Up Globe. We built it four times. 
And we have a pop-up globe in Auckland that's semi-permanent, that we, where our company is based. And the values we had, the first one was about academic integrity. We weren't interested in building a theme park. We wanted to build something that would advance the sum or make a contribution to the sum of human knowledge. The second core value we had was about an experience for our audience. You know, I'm a theatre maker. My professional career has been spent making Shakespeare, making theatre. And one of the core things about theatre is people have to enjoy it. <laughs> it's very important that people have a good time when they go to theatre. And of course, Shakespeare, regrettably in many quarters, has a reputation for being not very enjoyable. It has certainly been heavily intellectualised. So when we attend a Shakespearean performance, often what we're seeing is effectively a staged reading of a particular academic interpretation of a text. It's a little bit like watching a thesis. And I love that kind of, I, I love that kind of thing. There's a, there's a place for all types of Shakespeare performance. But we didn't want to have that. that, that, we, that we weren't interested in that. And the third thing was about brilliance theatrically. And that meant pulling together an international company of actors, working with highly experienced directors and creatives to make the best theatre we could make. The image you see there is of the first pop-up globe that we built, um, and it's a, it's a scene from Twelfth Night. So this first pop-up globe, I'm just going to take you through briefly these pop-up globes and how they changed. So that first pop-up globe um, existed for, um, you know, I think it was 12 or 13 weeks. What astonished us, you know, when we opened it, we had put a lot on the line. The money was personal money, like real personal money. Um, my real mortgaged um, our family home to help pay for it. Um, my business partner, Tobias, who's not a theatre person, he, he loves sort of um, uh, branding and things. Uh, he used money left him by his late mother. It was a very personal project. And there was a very high risk. You know, it, when you make something like this, it costs a lot of money. And we had to do all sorts of amazing deals with great, very helpful people to do it. But what astonished us was that we sold over 100,000 tickets, which in theatre terms is a lot of tickets. And here are some pictures of that first pop-up globe, which was like research in action. The first thing that happened was that the scaffolding firm we worked with, a company called Camel Space, I phoned them up and said, look, this is the plan. What do you think? And I managed, you know, because it's New Zealand, you can speak to the director of the company on your first phone call. You know? <laughs> so I was speaking to this massive Australian, actually, called Mick Spratling. And I said, what do you reckon about this project? And he said, I think you're effing crazy, but it sounds great. And two days later, they sent back almost, you know, the plans that formed the, the basis of the whole scaffolding construction. And we went with scaffolding, not because of years of research into the best material, but because that seemed to be the most likely winner. You know, it's cheap, scaffolders love to be creative, it's, it's plentiful, and it's also a global resource. And layer scaffolding, which was the product that we used, a German scaffolding, by some incredible uh, chance, the bay... So it's 16 bays, they call it, in scaffolding terms. Each bay matched almost exactly the dimensions that Tim had provided. And later research has led me to believe that's because scaffolding is based upon the uh, wooden scaffolding. So you get, you get progression in scaffolding, from wooden scaffolding to you know, metal scaffolding. And the standard length, uh, I'm told, of, a, of wood scaffolding is this sort of three, just over three meter length, about sort of 12, sorry, just under three meter, about sort of 12 foot you know, six or seven, which is the same as Tim's. You know, so there's a lot of amazing things that come together. So had it not been the case that layer scaffolding and uh, matched the dimension set up by Tim, it would have been too expensive to build. So that was very fortunate. And indeed, perhaps not fortunate, but based on another validation, perhaps, of these, these dimensions. And I, I, I'll show you a few images. There's looking down on a drone shot down into the yard there. And you can see that it's a mixture of timber and scaffolding. 
and there is uh, the theatre in its sort of full glory. The roof leaked like a sieve. Um, they built it out of plywood. They promised us it would work. There was no rain whatsoever during the build process. And, <laughs> and on the opening night when the mayor was there, the heavens opened and I've never seen a wetter theatre. But fortunately, you know, such a basic sort of theatre that that didn't really matter. And here's a photograph that shows you... Now, what, what, we, what we ended up with aesthetically is really based on the engraving that Holler did, not so much on the sketch. And as you leave tonight, you'll see, I hope, two models on the left as you leave. One of them is Russell's original model. Another is a model that, that we did uh, after we'd built this. And Russell's model is very much like the sketch, and the model we made is very much like the engraving. We now make our pop-up globe more like the sketch. So the one here in Sydney is much more like the sketch than the engraving, but the one in Auckland is much more like the engraving than the sketch. The, the dome is green because um, we thought it would be made of copper. And um, to give you an idea of what kind of a project it was, I personally painted that dome. <laughs> Here is the interior of Pop-Up Globe Auckland, that first one. And there you can see that we've tried to replicate the, um, the roof line that Tim and Russell put forward, which has this uh, bare wood interior. You can see all the wood in there. We couldn't regrettably get a link to the onion dome. You know, there's a lot of discussion about what that onion dome's for. Um, you know, ventilation, light, um, uh, regrettably we couldn't get it on that first build, it was too expensive. Um, and here's a view of the pop-up globe mid-performance with audience sitting on two levels behind the stage as per Tim and Russell's research. Um, a full theatre, a lot of bubbles, we, we got a bit overexcited and filled it with bubbles. I had a sort of vision where I was like, let's get lots of bubble machines. And, uh, and of course the audience loved it, but I, I'm sure Shakespeare didn't use bubble machines. Although, you know, bubbles have been around for a long time. Maybe he did use bubble machines. What was interesting about that theatre was the problem we had was the acoustic. The acoustic was poor. Um, it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great. And that part of that was because actors' voices got lost up in that ceiling above the stage. So then when we rebuilt the theatre the second time, a year later, amazingly, it, it, you know, we, we put on four plays. Um, bubbles, our head of production, is here tonight, and she came and worked on that season. Um, and has worked with us ever since. Um, and we, you know, got, racked up another 100,000 attendances, but we changed the design. We were wanted to make it a, a better theatre, and we were interested in, in researching the likely Sinai fronds or scenic front, um, and we created this, uh, uh, well, you'll see it outside, but it's, a, it's based on a Jacobean mansion from 1614. Uh, Tim is interested in two-door stagings. I have a lot of interest myself in two-door stagings, and we use that in rehearsal, but when it came to building the theatre, we were seduced by the idea of a central opening. You know, we're not... A kid, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Tim. Tim's still recovering in some ways from that. So what we are doing, we are not really about putting into practice all of Tim and Russell's research. You know, Pop-Up Globe doesn't get any state funding. We're interested in selling tickets and making the best theatre we can. And it's often the case that academic ideas about theatre meet reality and there needs to be compromise. And Pop-Up Globe is a, is a good example of that, I think. Um, we have kept the core dimensions the same. And now you can see the theatre rising at Ellerslie Racecourse. Um, the, uh, this is the new roof we put in that did have a link, does still have a link to the Onion Dome, as we were interested to see whether we could create what we described as the Stonehenge effect, where afternoon sun behind the theatre, you know, we know which way the theatre was orientated, would stream through the Onion Dome and backlight actors on stage. And if smoke is used, create an amazing effect. We didn't really see that happen. <laughs> It was quite disappointing as we got into a lot of trouble. Um, if you were there at the right time, you might have got something, but not enough really to justify it. In any case, uh, worth a go. 
Um, <clears throat> here is a, an aerial view of that second pop-up globe that again looks rather like the engraving. And in terms of the interior, there you can see the painted heavens and the sort of more impressive CNI fronds. Pop-up globe is all about connection with the audience. So as a theatre maker, I'm very interested in direct address, um, as well as uh, you know, trying to recreate some of the uh, ideas around original staging practice. So uh, this in the Henry V that we did, the, the king went into the yard during the night before um, the Battle of Agincourt. The little touch of Harry in the night. So the chorus gave that incredible, that beautiful speech. Uh, that um, a monologue uh, about how visiting the troops, and we had the king go through the audience and meet the, the, the groundlings. Now, what was extraordinary about that is, firstly, how natural it was. It seemed totally right to do that, but also how affecting it was for groundlings, who truly felt or allowed themselves to feel that they were meeting the king. And, particularly, and so we began to see during the season that a lot of fathers bring their sons, uh, their young, or you know, not just fathers, but, you know, parents bringing their children. I particularly remember several fathers and sons. And uh, Chris, the, this great actor who's with us again this season, uh, would make a point of engaging with them. And it was, it was very special. It was very moving. Um, and w uh, well, I could talk endlessly about how our work has influenced the way I think about Shakespeare's canon. But here we also use a lot of spectacle. And you can see here a lot of blood. <laughs> We're very interested in blood. Blood is an incredible thing in performance. When you see blood in front of you done well, your heart pounds and you watch very closely. It's a very effective tool and we use it extensively. When we started, we tried to keep it off the audience because we thought they would sue us, <laughs> right? Uh, and the first, one of the first performances we did, uh, I'll, I'll digress and tell this very brief story, I think it's worth telling. <clears throat> it was a corporate um, gig, right? <laughs> and it was the very first perf uh, performance in the original pop-up globe we built. And Romeo and Juliet, so at the end of the first half, right, you know, there, there's a lot of blood. And we'd said to the fight director, there was a lot of fear in our team about health and safety, because, you know, it's a big project, you don't want to get it wrong. And we had said to the fight director, for heaven's sake, make sure the blood goes upstage, not on the audience. Um, and in the event, there was no one standing in the groundlings. The 400 lawyers who were there at the preview all wanted to sit down, of course, and so the groundlings were empty, except for one 11-year-old boy uh, who was standing very close to the stage, um, and when the fight came and the throat of Tybalt was cut, the blood bag regrettably malfunctioned. Uh, all of the blood struck him in the face. Uh, it was a spectacular, it was a coup de théâtre. Uh, uh, and I said to the front of house manager, there was horror sort of in the production team, and I, the front of house manager rushed down with a towel and a free T-shirt. Uh, I said, oh, I'm sorry, little man, you know. Um, and the little boy turned around, uh, you know, beaming. And so that was the best thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> well, oh, okay. Okay, and then when the second half started, about half the lawyers were standing in the yard. <laughs> and they wanted to get blood on them too, you know. So now we've, uh, we get a lot of blood on the audience um, <clears throat> and other fluids too. Uh, as you will see for yourself, three out of the four shows here in Sydney have a lot of blood in um, uh, Merchant of Venice, oddly, although it's a play about, you know, blood doesn't, doesn't have any here, but blood's great. Okay, so then we went to Melbourne and we did Much Ado, Henry, Othello. We took those shows and transferred. And Melbourne really was, um, we were very lucky to be picked up by Live Nation because we don't have any money. And if you know anything about theatre, you know that theatre might sell a lot of tickets, but it costs a vast amount. Of money. It's very body heavy. I mean, we, at the, when we have a season running over here and in Auckland, we're employing over 120 people directly, full time. That's a, so it's a big machine that we run. 
But here, because we had Live Nation supporting us um, and, and allowing the project to happen, sort of bankrolling it, that meant we could, we could redesign and get a better design. And the design we went for, there's a couple of interesting features about it. The first you can actually see in this, in this photograph, and, and that is you can see a big bum on the building. Now, in Auckland, we'd built uh, Tim and Russell's work, but even just with four plays up, and we know, of course, that you know, these Shakespearean or Elizabethan and Jacobean companies had up to 40 plays in their repertoire. Even just with four up, we were totally out of space. Um, and, that, and, that, and I don't think there's enough space in the back of the building for anything other than actors and a show. So no office space, barely enough room to get changed. Um, and in fact, on the lower level behind the, in the tiring house, there's no space at all really except for just operations of getting stuff on and off stage. So when we, as soon as we could, we, had, we built a bum on the building. You will note if you, if we get a chance to see that hollow sketch again. Oh, look, it's here actually. Oh, but it cuts off the bit I wanted to show you. Just behind the, the hollow sketch, there is another building. It looks like a pub or something. And I'm convinced that they own that too. And I, I was saying to someone tonight, Ian, that I'm sure that they rented out rooms to the actors and said on one hand, here's your you know, accommodation allowance. And with the other one, we'll take that accommodation allowance back again for your room. Um, so there's that Melbourne. I'm coming to the end of, of my talk. I'm aware I'm sort of out of time here. So th this is Melbourne. Melbourne was a, we had a great time in Melbourne. Um, we built a beautiful theatre. The theatre that's in Melbourne has been slightly modified and improved. The dimensions are the same and brought here to Sydney. Um, and here's another shot of the interior there in, in Melbourne. What's special about what we do is that people come to see the theatre, I think, they're interested in, oh, what's this theatre they've built? But if the plays were rubbish, the productions, you wouldn't see them again. We pour our energy into what goes on stage. You know, we are a theatre company, first and foremost, not a building company. And the, our work has a transformative effect on audiences. And I wouldn't say that if it wasn't, you know, empirically proven to us, where we see particularly young people come back, not just once or twice in a season, but sometimes 20 or 30 times to stand in the groundlings and watch a show. And it really seems to hit young people really strongly. And we love that. That's a wonderful thing. Um, other theatres, you know, the, people talk about the grey-haired, sort of, you know, a lot of grey-haired you know, people in the audience. So, you know, I find that extraordinary that any theatre company would ever say anything about we don't like who our audience are. I, unbelievable. All theatre companies should be incredibly grateful for their audiences, and we are. But we notice our audience in the yard is very young, and that's a wonderful thing, I think, for theatre. The final couple of shots here shows some of the flying we did. This is Hyman in, in As You Like It. And you'll see that the roof has no hole in for the sun, but we do have a sliding trap in the ceiling. Um, and there's a close-up here of John Bain as Hyman coming through that. It's an amazing thing to see, anyway. Well, look, uh, the future, this slide says, the future depends on how many tickets we sell, but I hope we have a future. In New Zealand, we have created a, a really wonderful company that we all love working with, and I hope we'll go on for many years. And the great thing about Pop-Up Globe is it shares the magic of Shakespearean performance very widely, and that, that for me is something that is the most, the thing I'm probably most proud of in my life. So it's been a great journey, and it's been great talking to you tonight. Thank you very much indeed. So we've heard uh, about the history the historical context and the building itself, and we've heard about this venture and this adventure from Miles, and now I guess it's my job to talk about what it's like running around inside the thing. I'm learning how to travel swiftly and quietly on metal scaffolding. 
I'm getting very good at it. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, but I think it's, I guess, what I would like to tell you is what it's like to perform at Pop-Up Globe and how it's different from some of my other theatre experiences. I mean, I might even just start with the latter. Uh, I've, I think I was fortunate in that when I came to Pop-Up Globe, I'd already worked in... Uh, with, a, with a director who used to or who likes to stage things in the round and in traverse. He likes to perform in the audience sometimes. So I was already used to performing, um, doing direct address, giving some of my dialogue to audience members who I could see, uh, audience members who could see each other which is another important aspect of being an audience member at the Globe, especially if you, um, well, you can't see them in this picture, but up on the stage there are, um, there are seats where you, if, if you decide to buy one of those tickets, you'll be on the stage with us, effectively, which is quite exciting. We have to keep remembering that you're there. It's like, oh, God, they've paid lots of money. We have to, like, act at them. <laughs> um, you know, you, you, I was used to being able to see the audience, um, not, not with all of the house lights up or anything, uh, but I was fortunate that I'd done a bit of that kind of work already. So it meant that when I was performing in a room where the lighting stage never changes, the state never changes, in fact, the lights are the only um, thing that's run by electricity in the globe. Everything that you see, uh, everything that you hear, is manual. There is nothing amplified. At the beginning of Macbeth, oh, I have, um, I have, I just counted them four quietly. I have eight costume changes in Macbeth. A couple of those are very quick. I have to get into a coronation gown that's like all of these things, and I've got buttons and earrings and making sure my hair's right and all of that kind of thing. But at the beginning of the play, I operate the uh, lightning and thunder, which is very exciting, which I love. <laughs> In fact, Miles is like, I think we need some thunder and lightning at the beginning of the second, second half. And I'm like, Wait. and he said, no, Amanda, I don't want you doing too much. So, uh, yeah, as, as actors, we, we come out on stage and we do our acty thing. Uh, I um, am a soldier, but fortunately don't have to manu like, operate blood bags and stuff like that. But I do have weapons, which I really enjoy using. Um, and an, interestingly, I... Uh, I get to pretend to be a man, which is almost like things sort of switched around a bit, isn't it, from, from the way Shakespeare was done. So I get to be on, you know, I get to do my best. <laughs> how, do, how do men, what do men do with their things? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, I, was told by, I was told by Alexander, our fight director, he saw me standing on stage, I might have been like this a bit, and he was like, no, no, you're not right there, man. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to stand like a dude with some weapons. So I get to run around uh, backstage very quietly, have discussions very quietly, but important, and say, where is my prop? Negotiate how little room there is at the back. Um, walk through spaces going, coming through, coming through, coming through, coming through very quietly because everybody else is, like, doing a quick change, probably. Uh, we're all, we all change our costumes a lot. Um, I try to keep my hair extensions in and look fabulous because Lady Macbeth is fabulous until she f completely falls apart. Um, in Comedy of Errors, I have lots of costume changes and I play about seven different people, which is super exciting. Um, what else can I say about it? So there's no fourth wall. We don't want there to be a fourth wall. 
I want to be, it's basically the same kind of situation that I'm in right now, except mercifully I don't have to make it up like they do in Comedia, a little bit of script, a little bit of whatever. Um, and, and I personally really enjoy connecting with the audience. I feel a bit moved looking at this image because I, um, Chris Huntley-Turner is dear to my heart and I know that this man who he's touching is having an extraordinary experience at the theatre. You, you don't get that unless you're in the audience. And as an actor, I don't think you get that kind of experience unless you work for a place like this. And um, I'll close by saying that I, I feel, if you can hear in my voice, I'm a bit emotional um, because I, I get to do something extraordinary every day. I'm kind of living an actor's dream working for Pop-Up Globe because I work in a company which makes me incredibly happy. I have colleagues I had there who are also my friends, which I think is pretty amazing. Um, my, these colleagues here are also my friends, not just my actor friends. And every day I wake up in this beautiful city and get to go to work in this stupendous building with all of these gorgeous costumes and um, speak these beautiful words. And I feel that, that so many women and men have spoken before, and I feel, um, ex I feel very, very privileged to do that. And the, mo this, the most important thing for me about that experience is connection. And connection is something that actors talk about all the time, internal connection with your physical being and your own presence, connection with this presence here, and, the, and what's happening between people, this actor and that actor, but also this kind of connection. And um, I just, I could go on and on and on about what a beautiful thing it is. And, um, but I'm, I would like to thank Miles very much for creating it because it's wonderful. Listen, it now falls upon me to close proceedings. I won't dare to try to summarise, but invite you to thank our guests. Um, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.